Welcome to the 1505 Club, the podcast dedicated to the chiropractic work of Dr. Clarence Gonstead. I'm your host, Dr. David Fowler, and I'm thrilled that you have taken the time to join me. Today I'd like to talk to you on the subject of communication. Now, communication is a big topic, so we're really only going to scratch the surface and talk about one aspect of communication. But this is a foundational concept, and we can build in the future based on this solid foundation. This topic is probably the biggest key to understanding the difference between those who excel and those who simply get by. So today, we're going to crack the code on communication and do it in our own uniquely Gonstead sort of way. So hold tight, and I'll see you on the other side. What does it take to be a great communicator? Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator. One thing that we can learn from Ronald Reagan about great communication is honesty. I'm not trying to be political here, but consider this. Bill Clinton famously said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. We know that was a lie, and his influence was essentially non-existent after that day. George W. Bush said that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, but they were never found, and he lost credibility too because of it. To the point that some people even questioned his personal involvement in the 9-11 attacks. Barack Obama famously said that you can keep your insurance if you want. Today, millions of people know that was a lie, and he too has suffered in the credibility department because of it. I talk about this all the time, but people judge you and you judge other people based on two factors primarily, and those two factors are competency and character. I know what I'm about to say is debatable, but try to see the principle even if you disagree with the details. Bill Clinton had competence, but he lacked character. George W. Bush had character, but he lacked competence. I would argue that Barack Obama lacked both, so I'm going to leave him out of this example entirely because I need to prove a very important point. Nobody questioned Bill Clinton's competence until after his character flaws were obvious. In like manner, nobody really questioned George W. Bush's character until after his competency problems became obvious. So this is the important lesson that we have to learn. Once people begin to question either your competency or your character, if you fail to properly correct the issue, then you will force them to eventually question both your competency and your character. People generally question Bill Clinton's competency to the same degree that they question George Bush's character. Yet they do it without any tangible examples of their failings, but simply as a result of not trusting them. These questions, it turns out, are a result of their failings in an entirely different area, which I'm sure they would say is unrelated. But my point to you today is that they are so inexorably related that you cannot cause people to question one area, either your competence or your character, without ultimately causing them to question both your competence and your character. So, back to Ronald Reagan. In 1983, a terrorist attack took place in Beirut, Lebanon. The attack killed 241 U.S. Marines while they were sleeping in their barracks. The terrorists drove two large trucks into the barracks. The trucks were loaded with explosives, the equivalent of 21,000 pounds of TNT. It was the deadliest single-day death toll for the United States Armed Forces since the first day of the Vietnam War's Tet Offensive. Obviously, this was a big deal, and it was Ronald Reagan's duty to present the facts to the nation. Now, if we consider modern politics, it's a no-brainer that there would probably be some kind of spin, some kind of presenting the facts in a certain context so as to minimize any negative public opinion by keeping the public in the dark as to what actually happened. But that's not what Ronald Reagan did. Instead, he surprised all of his staff by insisting that they tell the American people the truth about what had happened. 
He didn't just tell the truth, he told the whole truth. He took responsibility for the fact that it happened on his watch, and he explained why we were there in the first place and what the mission was. In short, he was honest. And the consequences of his honesty are astounding. As a result of Ronald Reagan's speech, he saw the greatest increase in approval rating following a, natural, a national disaster in the history of U.S. presidents. What you can take from this is that people appreciate honesty, even when you have to deliver bad news. A reporter once mentioned to Ronald Reagan that he was known as the great communicator. His response was that he was not a great communicator, but that he had the privilege of communicating great things. The reason I wanted to start off today talking about honesty is because I see too much dishonesty in all of healthcare, but in chiropractic specifically. It's become way too much of a cliche that you simply have to follow the money to find out why people promote what they promote. Whether it's a long-term care plan or adjunct therapies or even some multi-level marketing scheme that people work into their offices, the underlying truth is that it's rarely about health and almost always about the money. I know, I know, medicine does it too. But I'm not concerned about the future of medicine. I'm concerned about the future of chiropractic. As a collective group, if we continue in this type of behavior, we will probably see some short-term gains and profits for a few individuals, but the cost will be that we will lose credibility in the long run because we will cause the public to question our competence and our character as a profession until they eventually lose all trust. The problem I see is that there were practices and behaviors that became widespread in the 80s that negatively affected my ability to, to build a practice 20 years later. And those practices had to do with the abuse of insurance. In fact, we are still punished today because of the abuses of, of people who were presumably long gone from the profession. So that makes me wonder, what things are we doing today that will affect the next generation? And do we have enough character to even care? I also say this because if we're going to build the public trust through competence and character, then communication, not just what we communicate, but how we communicate it, is going to be essential to the process. That's why I wanted to talk about communication today. So if you're ready, let's get started. From the time that I was a child, I struggled with severe and crippling shyness. What started out as shyness grew progressively worse until I found myself as a young adult nearly dealing with agoraphobia. To give you an example of how bad it really was, even in my later years, when I was a freshman at the University of Arizona, I took a calculus-based physics class, even though I had never taken calculus. I mean, how hard could it be, right? Well, the format of the class was that my grade was based on the result of three tests and my weekly homework assignments. The catch was that the homework assignments had to be picked up from the professor's office each week during the open office hours. To make a long story short, I got a C in that physics class. It wasn't because I did poorly on the test, because I actually did quite well, considering my lack of calculus experience. It was because I never did a single homework assignment due to the fact that I was terrified of going to the professor's office to pick the assignment up. Now, you can probably see that my behavior was often perceived by others as being either arrogance or laziness, when in fact it was really neither. One day I realized that this problem was going to severely cripple me for the rest of my life. As they say, it wasn't my fault, but it was my problem. Since nobody really understood what the problem was, I also recognized that I was on my own to solve the problem, by myself. And that's what I did. A couple years ago, I went to my 25th high school reunion. Afterward, my wife informed me that basically everyone in my class was shocked that I would speak, since they thought I was a mute since I never talked. My point is, my problem was so severe that the fact that I'm talking to you now is nothing short of a miracle. Now, it's my personal belief that when you have a problem as big and as obvious as mine was, 
It's pretty easy to acknowledge it and do something about it because ignoring it really isn't a viable option. The problem is when you have a small problem, then it's easy to ignore. Or even worse, you might convince yourself that your problem is actually a strength. For us to be effective today, we need to first acknowledge to ourselves that we all have room for improvement, regardless of where we really are. After all, there's no such thing as being too good of a communicator. So what I want to do is walk you down the path that I took and give you some basic principles for good communication. Being an avid reader, I started, I started the whole process by reading. I read some really amazing books that helped me to understand what good communication looks like. The first of these books is an all-time classic, and I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie is an amazing book because he doesn't just teach you how to communicate, but he actually uses his own tools in his writing so you can easily see how effective they really are. Dale Carnegie taught public speaking courses for young professionals, but when he was looking for a textbook, he couldn't find one. He wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People as the textbook for his course, and the Dale Carnegie Foundation still uses it that way to this very day. At this point, I've added every book that Dale Carnegie ever wrote to my library, but this book still stands out as an absolute masterpiece. Now, one problem that I often see with this book has to do with application. Several years ago, I mentioned to two people who asked what I was reading at the time that I was reading this book for the second time. They both immediately responded that they had read the book as well and that it was terrific. They then engaged in conversation together and I immediately observed that they were both violating nearly every principle mentioned in the book. This led me to the conclusion that the greatest distance in the world is the distance between knowing and doing. It's just too easy in this life to know what you should do, but to do something else instead. The reason the distance is so great is because, no, is because knowing, no matter how well we know it, is of nearly no use until we begin to act on what we know. This means that we have to have a plan for implementation, or else we just end up with knowledge for knowledge's sake, but without any benefits we would expect. It goes without saying that the value of this book is in practicing it, and not just knowing it. One of the key lessons that Carnegie teaches, both in his book and in others, is the value of storytelling. In a previous episode, Dr. Davis mentioned that chiropractors need to be storytellers. I couldn't agree more, and that's what convinced me that I needed to focus on this exact topic this week. Over the years, I've found that storytelling is one of the most effective ways to communicate with patients. Like most things, it does come with a caveat. The caveat is that it's almost completely ineffective to tell stories about yourself. You can think about it this way. I can refer a patient to any chiropractor in the country, and it doesn't matter how much I praise them or gush over their ability, it's never going to sound stupid. Well, maybe not never, but you understand what I'm saying. I just gave a referral to somebody today, and it isn't someone that I know very well, but I've met him a time or two. I told them that they should see him, and that he's excellent, and they will be very pleased. Now, imagine if I was to try to tell someone the exact same thing about myself. You should come see me. I'm really excellent, and you'll be very pleased. That's not even over the top, but it still sounds creepy and weird. Unfortunately, this is the approach that many chiropractors take, thinking that this is the key to building a successful practice. Shameless self-promotion is not going to create the reputation that you really want to have, and hopefully now you can start to see why. This is the same reason why telling stories about yourself is not the kind of storytelling that communicates well. I know it's tempting and it's such an easy trap to fall into because it feels like people will think that I'm relating with them by telling them a story about myself. Telling stories about yourself is a lot like taking people to your house, sitting them down in front of your television, and forcing them to watch old home movies from your family. 
It's pure agonizing torture. This is not an effective conversational style. Good storytelling is built around the moral of the story or the ultimate takeaway. Don't drown people in details, especially irrelevant details. You can lose people just as fast with too many details as you can with not enough details. Crafting a story is about moving at a pace that's neither too fast nor too slow. Most people who struggle with good storytelling struggle because of this one issue alone. The best storytellers I know all seem to have a knack for just instinctively knowing the proper speed to move the story along. In How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie tells many stories, and he isn't just a great storyteller, but he tells great stories, stories worth telling. The exact thing that Ronald Reagan was talking about when he was responding to the reporter. Chiropractic is, in and of itself, a story worth telling. The trick is being able to tell it in a way that makes it worth listening to. For each one of us, that's something personal. However you choose to tell a story, it needs to be consistent with who you are and how you communicate. You shouldn't tell the story my way, and I shouldn't tell it your way either. This means that we must become aware of how we communicate and what the story means to us uniquely. If you've never tried it before, instead of just explaining chiropractic as a boring collection of facts, try telling a story. Sure, it probably won't be great the first time, but it will improve rapidly, and I think you'll see that it's far more effective at communicating what you really want to communicate. Another book that had a huge effect on me, but a more obscure book to be sure, is High Trust Selling by Todd Duncan. The premise of this book is that selling isn't what most people think it is, and selling with character produces greater results than when we always go for the sale at any cost. One of the lessons that really stuck out from this book was a lesson on helping people even when there's no reward for you. He tells the story of a time when a customer called in with a problem that they were hoping he could solve. He knew what they needed, but he didn't have anything to sell them. However, he knew of someone else who did. He immediately called the person he knew to make sure they would have what the woman needed, and once he verified that they did, he sent her over to the other guy, and he helped to solve her problem. He was then shocked a few weeks later when this customer began sending him referrals. She said that a guy who's willing to help the way he did, even when there was no reward in it for them, is the kind of guy you can trust to take care of you when there is a reward in it for them. I realized that if I would just do my best to solve whatever problem was before me, regardless of how much I get paid or whether or not I get paid at all, then that's how I was going to build the reputation that I wanted to have. Communication became a lot easier for me when it was focused on simply understanding the problem and then solving that problem to the best of my ability. I think this is a key lesson in a time and generation where people won't think twice about prostituting themselves for money. I don't think it's too strong to say it that way because I frequently see people who will deny their character and compromise on what they say are deeply held beliefs or simply make excuses for why the bad thing they're doing isn't really that bad if only there's enough money to be made doing it. Nobody should be bought off that easily. This leads straight into another lesson that I learned early on. That is the value of listening. I think it might be easier for an introvert to listen since not talking is our natural tendency. However, the challenge for an introvert is to speak up when it is necessary or to ask questions for clarity when we are uncertain. People can tell whether or not you're listening by the quality of the questions you ask, not the quantity. Some people ask way too many questions. They think that asking a question after every sentence is an indication that they are listening. But I find that when people do this, they often ask questions that have already been answered. Asking questions that have already been answered is a surefire way to let the other people know that you are not listening. I think it's better to let the person talk so that they don't lose their train of thought and they can be more helpful to you. 
When you know that there's no expectation for you to talk, then it's much easier to put yourself fully into listening mode. And you'll be amazed at how much more you hear when you aren't worried about asking questions or what you're going to say next. In fact, the number one impediment to good communication is thinking about what you're going to say next. If you allow yourself to fall into this trap, it will forever impede your communication, even though you will most likely feel as though you are communicating well. After all, I was asking a lot of questions. Remember, it isn't about the quantity of questions, it's the quality. What if you are seeing a new patient for the first time and you are only allowed to ask three questions? Do you think you could make those three questions count? If that pressure would cause you to ask better and more thought out questions, then you probably need to start asking better and more thought out questions. Every question you ask should have that much thoughtfulness behind it. Another great tip to improve communication is the ability to simplify. I think I've quoted Einstein before when he said that things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. He also said that to be simple is to be brilliant. These two quotes together demonstrate the art of simplicity. We should always strive to make things as simple as possible while simultaneously avoiding the pitfall of oversimplification, which leads to error and wrong thinking. In my early years, I struggled with this because I didn't really know how to effectively simplify, and I was afraid of oversimplification due to my own misunderstanding. But then I had a thought. When you look in the Bible, you find that at a certain point in, in life, Jesus spoke almost exclusively in parables. Parables are a somewhat odd literary device, so I found it interesting that he would use parables of all things. We often use analogies, and those are somewhat close to the same thing, but not quite the same. I began to experiment to see if I could come up with any parables to explain the chiropractic story. I eventually decided that the use of parables and analogies was the most effective way to communicate chiropractic. If you struggle to know how best to communicate, try using analogies, and from there you can graduate up to parables. My only caution is that you want to put a lot of thought into this because you want the analogy or the parable to be as accurate to reality and the concept you're trying to communicate as you possibly can. I personally use lots of analogies, almost exclusively, but if I see an opportunity to create something that is more like a parable, I will do my best to take it. Another great book that had helped me was Everyone Communicates But Few Connect by John Maxwell. If you've never heard of John Maxwell, then you should definitely look him up. He's a very prolific writer, but his simple style is the key to his effectiveness. 20 years ago, I joined a CD mentorship program where I got a lesson from John Maxwell every month. I would put it in my car and I would listen to it over and over again until the next CD would arrive the next month. For more than a decade, John Maxwell spoke into my life through that program, and it was a tremendous benefit. So this particular book talks about how easy it is to communicate and miss the fact that you've lost the connection to your audience. As John says, he who thinketh he leadeth, but has no followers, is merely going for a walk. As a leadership expert, John Maxwell knows that the biggest key to leadership is effective communication, and that requires a connection, and not just the exchange of information. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone post on Facebook about their bossy little girl. For some reason, it's always a little girl and not a boy. I have no idea why. But they post about how they're going to grow up to be a leader one day. I don't know why people draw this conclusion, but it seems lost on so many people that bossiness is actually the antithesis of leadership. If you've ever been around a bossy child or a bossy parent, then you know that one of their weakest skills is typically the ability to communicate. In fact, I think that bossiness is typically a self-defense mechanism to cover for the fact that they have a hard time properly interpreting what other people are saying. Try giving directions to a bossy person and see what happens. They won't just ignore you, but they will usually find, but you usually find that it's impossible to get them to even understand what you're saying. That's why I think it's a self-defense mechanism. 
developed at a young age to compensate for the fact that they're terrible listeners and have difficulty turning other people's ideas and concepts into a concrete thought or action. That's just my theory, but I'm sticking to it. Nevertheless, John Maxwell's idea is that you need to speak to people's heart and not just their head. As doctors, it's very easy to get caught up in burying people in facts. One way to turn this around is to discuss how facts will impact them personally. To this end, I have a concept that I'd like to share with you that will help you to know how best to communicate with individuals. My wife and I use a concept called the DISC profile, D-I-S-C. The full profile contains 16 different profiles and behaviors, but it begins with just four basic profiles. The way we use it, we're not trying to do any type of deep psychological profile, so we just use the initial four profiles to make quick but accurate, accurate gross generalizations. The reason we do this and find it helpful is because each of the four personality types have a different communication style. If we can quickly assess an individual's preferred personality style, then we immediately know how best to communicate with them and the pitfalls to avoid. So let's quickly move through the different personalities so we can make a flash assessment. D stands for dominant. These people are generally like a bull in a china shop to make a gross generalization. They tend to get what they want simply because they bulldoze everyone into doing it their way. They're generally not very well liked by the people around them, but they are also generally oblivious to this fact. They could be described as sheer force of personality. Next is the I, and it stands for informative. These people are conversationalists. They're often well liked, even if nobody really knows why they like them. They're more interested in the exchange of information than they are in the information itself. This gives them the ability to create an environment or a mood, and that's the secret behind why they're liked. The next one is the S. This stands for steadfast. These people are the peacemakers because they can't stand it if anyone is upset. They want to keep the balance, and as long as everyone's happy, then they're happy. The final one is C, and that stands for conscientious. These are the infophiles who just love to research and gain knowledge. They hate being inaccurate or wrong, so they want to make sure that they know as much as possible before moving forward. Now let's talk about how we communicate. The trick with D's is to understand that they only really care about three things in the whole world. And if you aren't talking about one of them, they really aren't very interested. I know you've seen these people because when you try to explain, their eyes roll back in their head and they try to push the conversation along so they can just hurry up and get to the end. Well, here's the trick. One thing that they always care about is themselves because after all, they are human. I know, that probably sounds mean, but it's true. We've never had a D that did not respond well to this communication approach. This means that you have to explain in the context of how it affects them and how the solution will make their lives better. You also have to talk quickly and to the point because they're probably going to give you about 30 seconds to explain. Unless, of course, you start talking about yourself, in which point you're probably going to have about a half a second before they interrupt you and cut the conversation off entirely. They will, at this point, say something like, well, I don't really care about any of that, or you're the dog, that's why I'm paying you. Their responses tend to be rude because they're intended to shut the conversation down instantly. For most of us, to be honest, these are our least favorite patients. The trick is to see them quickly and move them along quickly. They'll actually appreciate you for it because their time is one of their most valuable commodities in the whole world to them. Now, on the flip side, the doctors that I've seen struggle more than any other are the D doctors. Fortunately, I have extreme confidence that there probably aren't any D doctors listening to this podcast right now because that's not really something that Ds would typically do. The problem is that many, if not most, of the practice management gurus I'll build your practice in no time, people, are D personalities. If you follow their advice, you might build your practice with D tactics, 
but people will grow to resent you in the process. That's why most of these people build huge practices in a short amount of time, but then the practice burns out rapidly and is reduced to nothing. When they find themselves with nothing, they start their own business teaching people how to build a practice like they did because they don't disclose that these same tactics will also teach you how to destroy a practice just like they did. Just something to think about. When communicating with an I, the biggest pitfall is that they don't always care about what you're saying. They're just happy to be having a conversation. I know that probably sounds cynical, but I'm a C and we excel at cynical. Actually, my wife is an I, so I'm not really being cynical, but I'm trying to be practical. I know that we can have two different kinds of conversations. There's the kind where we're exchanging information so that we're both on the same page. And then there are conversations where it's really about conversation and it's not meant to be productive. We might just call this dreaming. Both of these conversations are good and they have their place, but the key is making sure that we're having the appropriate conversation at the appropriate time. In my office, I've caught eyes thinking that we're just sharing stories about our lives and they're missing the point that I'm trying to help them and we're not just sitting down to have coffee and share stories. If an eye thinks that you're just sharing with them, they can destroy your whole schedule because they'll instantly lose track of time and five minutes will turn into 30 minutes of unproductive conversation. My key to handling this one is to avoid talking about anything personal. If you talk personally, they will think you're making a connection and they will dive in. Keep the conversation focused entirely on them, which is probably what you should be doing anyway. Next are the S's, and here we have a rather unusual pitfall. S's will try so hard to be accommodating that they will agree to, to anything you say, even if they have no intention of following through. The conversation will go like this. I'd like to see you again next week. Sounds great. Would you prefer morning or afternoon? And they will say, whichever is better for you. It can actually become frustrating because you just want them to make a decision, but they're far more concerned with being accommodating. However, even if they have no intention of coming back, they will still have the same conversation and then they'll just not show up because they're so turned off by conflict that they usually will have, they won't even address the issue uh, if there even is one. With the C's, we have conscientious. C's are largely guided by their greatest fear, which is the fear of being wrong. In fact, we can go back just a little and cover the biggest fear of each personality type. I can tell you that a D's biggest fear is not being in control. An I's biggest fear is being made to look bad and an S's biggest fear is a lack of harmony. Knowing a person's greatest fear is often the best window to look through if you want to figure out which personality type they really are. Okay, so back to the C's. C's love information. So these are the people that you can tell all the details to and they will totally eat it up. The problem is, especially if you are not a C, they will often ask questions that will make you uncomfortable or that you simply can't answer and you will feel like they are challenging you. Truth be told, they might actually be challenging you. See, each personality type has a different way and reason for asking questions. C's ask questions in order to smoke people out. If a C is doing this to you, it's because they're trying to figure out if you actually know what you're talking about or if you're just blowing smoke. A C will rarely ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. I know that these are gross generalizations, but they can be extremely helpful when you're trying to figure out how best to communicate with an individual patient. If they're a D, then cut to the chase. Give them bullet points about how this is going to help them, meaning related to their chief complaint, or else you're just wasting their time and yours. Don't sit them down. Don't try to give them a chiropractic education. They actually won't appreciate it. Save that for the C's. C's love education, and they will happily eat up anything you want to offer them as long as it is meat and not just sizzle. 
With eyes, you're going to have to enjoy conversation, but don't let the enjoyment become a substitute for productivity. Make sure that you're hitting the important points and not drifting off target without knowing it. With S's, don't let their agreeableness convince you that you have done a great job of presenting when in fact they might not have heard or they might even disagree with it, but they will rarely tell you. Communication is one of those things where there's no right answer, but there are principles that will make us more effective. I find that when people are poor communicators, it's often for no other reason than the simple fact that they have picked up bad habits. Most of these bad habits come from their parents, but then they also come from their siblings, friends, coworkers. In other case, it's simply a matter of laziness, or maybe I should say a lack of awareness. When I was much younger, an older gentleman said, thank you to me. My response was, no problem, like many of the school kids still do today. His response was, I never said it was a problem. I said, thank you. That got me thinking, why did I say no problem? I immediately began to notice that so many people said no problem that it had just become accepted as the appropriate response. But with some reflection, I decided that it really was not the appropriate response. I made it a point from then on to say, you're welcome. But then I found myself saying that so much that I kind of got boring. So I started responding with my own Gonstead-inspired response. Today, when patients say thank you, I will usually respond with, you bet or you betcha. The Urban Dictionary says that you bet implies that the result is so sure that you can bet money on it. I like that connotation. Lately, I've noticed that a lot of millennials like to respond with, the, with this statement, fair enough. If you think about it, the implication is that it isn't really fair, but it's just barely fair enough. Now, I don't think that's what any of them mean or what they intend to communicate. But I point this out because we're not always sensitive to the implications that come from phrases we use routinely and without much thought. To be a good communicator, I think it's really important to give thought to some of these things and to consider what the other person might be hearing, especially if it's not what we're intending to say. Carelessness with words and phrases is a major impediment to becoming a good communicator. I doubt that anyone listening to this is as pathologically introverted as I was, but on the off chance that there is someone, I'd like to share with you some of the action steps that I took. As I mentioned at the beginning, knowledge is only beneficial if we put it into action. When I was in my late teens, I decided to take a step toward destroying my problem. I came from a musical family, where, and at that time, three family members were singing in a choir, and my uncle was the choir director. I decided to join the choir, knowing that it would force me on stage and in front of people. The very first time I did it, I felt like an out-of-body experience, and I nearly had a heart attack. I felt like I couldn't breathe, and my, my limbs were going numb. This confirmed for me that I definitely had a problem. Each time I got up there, it became easier and easier. When I felt like it was easy, I tried singing a duet with my mom. My mom's a great singer, so I knew I could lean on her probably too much. From there, I progressed to singing on my own, and I eventually became the singer in a rock band where I was singing every single week. The point being, I took, my, I took many progressive steps, and over time, I turned a huge problem into one that was easily manageable. Today, I often have people mention that when I do something on stage, whether it's singing or acting or even just speaking, the people who know me see that I never get nervous and I don't obsess over practicing ahead of time. If they bring this up, I will tell them that with all of my experiences on stage, I've had some of the most embarrassing things happen to me, and you know what happened because of all that? Nothing. I lived, and I didn't die. In fact, most people who are there probably don't even remember what happened. I don't know anyone who spent time on stage who couldn't tell you stories of falling off the stage or making an embarrassing mistake. In the end, they all lived. And when they figured out that it isn't really that bad, they started to enjoy themselves. And that's when they became better at what they did. So my final tip is to simply enjoy what you do 
It will make you so much better at doing it. So let's sum up what what we've talked about regarding principles for good communication. First of all, tell stories. A story can communicate so much more effectively than just a collection of facts. When I first started in practice, I struggled with this because I didn't feel like I had stories to tell. But I did have mentors, and I had their stories. So I borrowed stories. I didn't tell them like they were my own, but I gave credit to other people and used their stories to explain what chiropractic is and how it works. It didn't take long to acquire enough of my own stories that I never had to worry about that problem ever again. Principle number two, do for others what you would hope they would do for you. If the person in front of you was your mother and you were some other chiropractor, what would you want that person to do for your mother? Well, that's what you should do. You shouldn't have to think about what the right thing to do is. The right thing to do will almost always jump into your head immediately. But if we wait too long to act, we might talk ourselves out of doing it. So as soon as you know what to do, immediately do it. And it will pay off for you in ways you cannot even imagine. Principle number three, go beyond communication and make a connection. You do that by speaking to their heart and not just their head. So what does that look like? One simple way of doing this is that instead of forcing your vision and ideas upon them, find out what their vision and their ideas consist of. Then come alongside them and adopt their vision as your own. Then help them to put thoughts into action to turn their vision into a reality. Most people make the mistake of forcing their own vision, and that's not kind or helpful. Even if you butter it up with, can I make a suggestion? I already know what your suggestion is. You think I should do it your way. Another great book that I haven't previously mentioned is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of his chapters is on the win-win-win philosophy. The idea... The idea is that if everybody wins, then everyone can work happily together as we're all pursuing our own ideal outcome, while simultaneously helping others to achieve theirs. For some reason, many, if not most, people think that the only way that there can be a winner is if there's also a loser. So in order to become a winner themselves, they set out with the mindset of making losers out of everybody they meet. That's a terrible philosophy for life, and the results are far worse than when you adopt the win-win-win mentality. If you, instead, look to make winners out of other people, then you can see the opportunity to come in alongside them and create a scenario where everyone gets to win, including you. Finally, I'd like to remind you of the DISC system of personality profiling. I have a ton of information on this system, and I could go on for hours just talking about this one topic alone. But today, I just want you to understand the basics so you can begin to recognize the different communication preferences and begin to tailor how you communicate based on your audience. This one step is a huge step forward when it comes to improving your communication ability. One-size-fits-all communication is the lowest level of communication. So if that's where you are, then this would be a giant first step in the right direction. I hope today I've inspired you to really consider your communication and to find some active steps toward improving your communication. If you prefer to be more passive, then I would absolutely recommend reading any of the books that I've mentioned today. They're all fantastic and well worth your time. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.